0: None of the lyrics are clear, except for, she drives me crazy. She drives me crazy.
1: Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers, by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning! Warning! This podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list.
2: I don't care, give Monday's blue, Tuesday's gray, and Wednesday's too. Thursday, I don't care about you, it's Friday, I'm in love. That song is what inspires today's topic. Thank you, everyone, for joining us again for another episode of Keep It Fictional Book Chat with the Port Moody Public Library. When I was browsing upcoming books, I saw a book with this colorful, vibrant cover called Friday I'm in Love, a new book by Cameron Garrett, a young adult novel, a romantic comedy thing, which means I will never read, but... It's got that cure song stuck in my brain for the whole day. So the next day I came to work, went and asked Fiona, Fiona, do you think that enough books with songs' names as titles that we can make it a topic for keep it fictional? And Fiona flexed their librarian muscles, did their research, and they said, Yes, I think there is. And there is even a Murakami book for Mark. So we figure, yeah. I think we can do this topic. So that's what we got for you today. Books that have the same names as songs, or maybe they use song titles or lyrics extensively through the book, whether it is on the chapter titles or in the story or whatever way my book friends decide to interpret this theme today. So can't wait to hear what everybody has. It seems like when I was at least searching for a book for today, there are a lot of young adult novels, it seems like, that has that, uses this. Um, So we'll see whether there are any young adult novels that came in today. So Mark, what have you got today? Is it the Murakami book?
3: No, actually, it's not a Murakami book, but you got the right country, at least. So I actually was looking that up. And I was pretty sure someone on this podcast already did one of the Murakami ones that has a a song title in the name. So I was like, well, that might be a little bit repetitive to do that one. Like, honestly, the way I was thinking of this, the first series that actually came to my mind was the one that I decided to talk about today, um, which is a manga series by Naoki Urasawa called 20th Century Boys, which is, of course, based on the T-Rex song 20th Century Boy. So a little bit about Urasawa as an author. He is sort of known for a blend of traditional manga style character designs with a more real world aesthetic and using settings that kind of have a blend of literary themes or genres and more manga sci-fi kind of sensibilities as well. In addition to writing and drawing, Ursao actually also has an interest in writing and performing music. He has recorded a couple of different albums and some of his songs are either based on or draw on his manga series and have been used to promote them in the past. There's also a very strong musical connection with the author of this work as well. He's also hosts a weekly NHK radio program with the actor Junji Takada and has his own YouTube channel called Urasawa Channel, where he gives like ongoing updates on his current series Asadora, digitization projects of his past works, as well as a behind the scenes look of how he draws, creates characters and does other aspects of his work, such as like the different kind of colors he uses combined to do his color pages and things like that. So if you're interested in kind of seeing some of the behind the scenes stuff of how manga works. He's also very much a guy who likes to talk about that a lot. He likes to show that. He's interviewed other manga artists about their process. He definitely has a wider breadth of works that he's done outside of just his strictly manga work. And in this particular book, 20th Century Boys, we follow a group of friends currently living in the late 1990s who are now in their 40s, but have known each other from the time they went to elementary school in the late 1960s to early 1970s. This group of friends is informally led by our main character, Endo Kenji, a once aspiring rock and roll musician who now runs his parents' convenience store after the death of his father and his mother is no longer able to run the store on her own. He's also responsible for looking after his disappeared sister's infant daughter. Now, Kenji's always been like a bit of a dreamer with designs on bigger things than being so like a mundane kind of salaried worker working nine to five, working at a convenience store now that he's kind of given up on his dreams. So a little bit on the background of these friends. So this, the main cast of characters this group of friends from the 1960s and 70s. They were a particularly close-knit group. They had this, like, this sort of own secret hideout in an abandoned lot. They hung out the local convenience store that they referred to as Gigi Babas or Grandpa and Grandmas after the elderly couple that ran the store and created all kinds of fantasy games based on manga, radio programs and all the other things that they could get their hands on. This included creating one fantasy story about the League of Evil, as they called them, an evil organization in the future that creates a giant robot, a killer disease, and conspires to take over the world and consolidate world government that controls the population through fear and manipulation. They even created a special symbol to represent to the group, which was like a hand pointed upwards with a little, like, an eyeball drawn on the back of the hand and, like, another thing going around the hand. All of this was written down in a ratty three ring binder that they called the Book of Prophecies as a sort of collective work of their own fiction and fantasy. But now let's get forward to the 1990s again. A large cult-like group known as the Friends begins to gain a following to the point where they're able to hold large rallies at the Budokan. Budokan being a large venue for music and sports. It's a rather famous venue in Japan that's used by many top musicians and giant sumo wrestling tournaments are held there and things like that. So it's kind of like a very big place there. The leader of this group is a man who only ever appears in public wearing a cloth mask with a symbol on it which happens to be the very same symbol as the one that Kenji and his friends used for the League of Evil. To picture this mask, it's kind of like what the guys in the Squid Game wear, you know, with like the symbols on it, except instead it's the kind of the symbol that they created. So this man is known only publicly as the friend or to his followers, our friend. The friend claims to have the ability to levitate, to have special cognitive powers to be able to predict the future and is the one who will lead humanity into the 21st century out of the 20th century. Also around the exact same time in 1999, there's the sudden death and suspicious suicide of one of Kenji's former classmates and close friend, uh, Saburo Kido, or as they refer to him as a kid, Donkey, who fell from the roof of a school at which he was teaching. But shortly just after this, Kenji and each of his friends received a letter in the mail from Donkey, postmarked just days before his death, alerting them to the existence of the friends, and the discovery that several of his students have been associated with them and that they were using their symbol in a public way. Suspicious of the timing of the message with Donkey's death, Kenji begins to think that they may be connected in some way, as inspired to try and learn more about this shady group, as convinced that there's something larger afoot when he learns of other associates of this group, either suddenly disappearing mysteriously or turning into proselytizing zealots trying to recruit other people to the friends, so convinced that Kenji becomes that the friends are actually a real-life attempt by someone to fulfill the Book of Prophecies of the League of Evil in their childhood games. He decides to track down his old friends and investigate how this group could know about a symbol and organizational structure so similar to League of Evil that only they thought they knew about. In trying to track down his former classmates, Kenji and his friends begin to encounter and uncover, like, experiences from their past and people that they've knocked thought about in years and very much becomes a kind of like a an uncovering of things long forgotten of like a re-examination of the childhood as it, the years have gone by into the present and how this relates to this strange cult-like group so just to sort of introduce some of the other members of Kenji's old group of friends there's Maruo a gregarious upbeat child who never fails to find the positive in things later in the 90s he's married now with two kids his family's work takes up all his time. So he sort of drifted away from his group of friends. There's Ocho, the take on the world himself kind of type, who's always trying to go to the lone wolf and sort of do things his own way, but he's also very much very protective of his friends. He's very connected to them, even though he has this tendency to kind of go off on his own. And he's also sort of been disconnected from Kenji in recent years because he's gone to Thailand to work at overseas trading company. They've lost touch with each other, but now they're sort of reconnecting now in the late 90s. There's Yoshitsune, a rather timid and clingy boy who earned his nickname Yoshitsune because he shares the last name as Yoshitsune Minamoto, the famous historical figure, even though he's very much the polar opposite of this heroic sort of warlike figure. There's Yukiji, the lone girl in the group. She's sort of like a fierce defender of her friends, has a strong sense of justice, which led her to practice martial arts and works in professions that allow her to do this. But she's also traveling around the country a lot. So now She's also very disconnected from her old group of friends. Through this encounter with the friends in the late 90s, this group of friends sort of starts to come back together in a way. And the kind of dynamic of their childhood mixed with the present kind of reminded me of some of like perhaps a Stephen King's it in a certain way kind of almost where they have like this, there's the forward and backwards aspect from their childhood into the future, how this group of friends encounters this strange experiences. The way that they're very closely tied together reminded me very much of some of those kinds of works like Stephen King And very much throughout this series, it's a slow uncovering of who the friends are, the mystery of who the friend is and how he knows uh, all these things about the past. How he in some ways actually related to Kenji and his friends from their old neighborhood, and that the past and the present are much closer together than they sort of assume at the beginning. they sort of uncover that beneath the facade of this kind of revolutionary millennium prophet of the friends organization, they're actually intertwined with the kind of underground and criminal elements with designs to execute a plan that will shake Japan to its very core. The series itself contains many skips in time with chapters taking place, either sort of like the late 60s, early 70s, into the 90s. So there's very much like a constant leaping forwards and backwards one chapter in the past, another in the present, and then later on the series, as well as another skip forward in time into the 21st century. This sort of gives the story that is kind of straightforward on the surface, but gives it kind of a unique twist by incorporating elements of history memory, and friendship over a long period of time. In particular, I found the chapters in the 1969 to 1971 period most interesting as they kind of showcase the feeling of growing up in Japan at that time, even though I have like no idea what it was actually like to live in Japan at that time, the kind of breadth of references to different cultural touchstones, like major events like Expo 70 in Osaka, and the kinds of people and places in their neighborhood, which this group of friends grew up in is very like engrossing it kind of gives you a feeling of being there in that time period even if you don't really know what it was like to be there at that time just the the way that Urasawa kind of picks these people and the places it's very easy to connect with them in that way there's also lots and lots of pop culture references in this like uh, we mentioned haraki murakami earlier but i think there's more references per page in this than in murakami's novel to different rock and roll musicians pop stars like literary works and things like that he's definitely got Murakami one- up in that regard actually I would say the series also starts to make use of science fiction and mystery elements mixed with comedy and these kind of aspects of friendship it kind of has a unique kind of combination I found in the way it kind of combines these different elements with each other because ultimately the story is about friendship truth and fiction remembering the past and the power of friendship and connections with the people that you grew up with So if you like stories that span large amounts of time across decades, stories about friendship, the strength of bonds, or want to read a story about deception, memory, and the groups that are formed around them, then you may also like 20th Century Boys by Naoki Urasawa.
2: So I have to ask, Mark, are you a fan of the song?
3: Yes. That's also probably what led me want to read it more than some of the other ones, because sometimes you hear us you think the book sounds interesting, but you're like, oh, I remember that song. I hated that song. It almost kind of puts you off from the beginning. Whereas if you like the song, it's like, oh yeah, I like that song. I want to, I want to read that one now.
1: I have to ask, Mark, have you seen Velvet Goldmine?
3: No, I have not.
1: See, that's, yeah. See, Virginia, you're nodding. You know what I'm talking about. There's a great cover of that song in that movie. And just yeah, great, great song. Great pick, Mark.
2: All right. Well, I don't have any feelings about the song title in my book. Can't say I like it or or not, doesn't matter to me, but definitely know the song. I'm sure you would too. But the Nikolin Orb, let's start with the Nicollan Orb. It is the highest honour, the most coveted prize, and Nico and her team have a chance to win this tonight. They have worked so hard towards this, all the preparation, all the practice, and it all comes down to this night. And if they can win... Fame and fortune, and mostly fortune. And it also means that Nico is one step, actually many, many steps closer to her goal. Something that she has been wanting to do, but never have enough money to do so. So tonight, all eyes are on the price. And their success, their hopes, and their dreams are going to rest upon an eggplant. Nico is the owner of the Last Chance restaurant on the twice-far space station. She never thought that she would become a restaurateur. She and most of her crew are actually ex-military. They are soldiers for the Holy Hive Mine. If you are picturing some sort of collective consciousness business, you are right. It is this sneaky and super aggressive force that goes around gobbling up planets and space stations and everything in their way. Nico, like many others, enlists because they need money. That's kind of the only option left for them. But of course, they didn't read the fine print. They only knew that it was a good paying job, but they don't realize that they don't get paid until they leave. And no one leaves the army. So they are pretty stuck. But she and her second-in-command, Darby, has found a loophole. There are two things that the Holy Hive Mind value: one, their soldiers, and two, their artists. So Darby and Nico, they work really hard and manage to convince them that Nico is a culinary artist. And so once they are certified, they were allowed to take a leave from service to open a restaurant. And of course, they went as far as they could get to the twice-far space station. Business is doing okay, you know, they're making profit, but just not quite big enough to pursue that goal that Nico has. But as their reputation grows, they're attracting people coming from everywhere to try their food. And now they have caught the attention of a food critic. And give this food critic, like what they eat and like what they see, they will be awarded the Nikolin Award. But of course things never go according to plan. First, there was this last-minute reservation from her old commander from the Holy Hive Mine and bringing in a party of 20. They don't have room and time for this big giant group, especially on tonight, such an important night. Not only that, Nico has a sneaking suspicion that they're not just here to eat their food. There must be something else going on. So quite concerned about that. But as if a party of 20 is not enough, the whole space station is buzzing with the arrival of a world-famous rich racer named Arpad Takravan, along with his state-of-the-art bioship, you sexy thing. Bio ships are grown, they're not built. And of course, that means they are sentient, they're controlled by an AI. There are not that many around. So everybody wants to see it, including some of her crew. And they're getting super distracted by this famous racer and their ship. But not only that, Arpad actually flew all the way to the station to come and eat. Somehow he has found out that the food critic is here and he just wants to know. He's so curious about what kind of person eats food for their job. So they really, really just curious to know what that is. And so he tells Nico, I will pay you anything. Just name your price. I just want a chance to sit near the critic. And it doesn't even have to be the same table, just somewhere in the vicinity. I just want to observe them. I just want to see them eat. And of course, Nico really could use the money. So Against all her better judgment, she accepted his offer. But they're not just uninvited people. They're also uninvited things. That afternoon, a big mysterious crate was delivered, addressed to Nico. No return address, so they have no idea who this was sent from. At first, Nico tried to ignore it. But during her break, she was like, okay, let's just find out what it is. So she pry open the lid, took one look, slammed the lid down, and walked out of the room. And she's like, nope. Not today, not dealing with that right now. So, with all these distractions, with all these other complications, finally the critic Lolola arrives. She is seated, and they were just about to begin service when suddenly they hear and they feel rumbling. Explosions outside on the space station. Things, many things are being blown apart right now, and maybe the station is being attacked. So now, instead of eating, instead of preparing this meal, they have to evacuate. And Nico was actually kind of glad that Apat was here because he's got a ship. So they all pack all the stuff as much as they can, maybe with the eggplant, follow him, and try to get to the ship. But alas, a pad was hit by a bullet or something on the way, and he is going to die. Well, it's okay. This body of his is going to die. He's rich. He's got backup all over the place, so he can just upload them to the body. And so Nico and I was just like, okay, give us the password now. We will bring your ship to your new body. Just give us the password now. And I like, said, okay, 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 fine. Just tell the ship. I believe in miracles. This is the book. You Sexy Thing by Kate Rambo. I've never actually read a Kate Rambo book before, but they seem to be a very active member in the science fiction writing community. They are not just a writer, but they also lead a lot of writing workshops. And you can tell this is the work of someone who knows and loves their craft and their science fiction. Just the way they manipulate all those tropes, and there are so many tropes. It is a feast for all of us science fiction fans. And you can tell when somebody who knows their work and has a passion there, even those elements that feel so sort of familiar, like you'll be like, oh, I've seen that before. I read that somewhere else. They still feel real. They feel, still feel authentic and they still feel fresh. This is this rollicking adventure that has like space pirates prison planets, intergalactic war, hive minds, and all kinds of things that you want in a space opera. But of course, what makes me follow the story, no matter where it goes, is the characters and, of course, their banter. You know, this found family, one of my favorite trope. You got Nico, a semi retire a tough but really, you know, kind, general. You got a crew that are made of all sorts of different species. You got their pastry chef, who's like a bird, you got like where lions, you got squid that likes to touch everything, you got this reptilian mystic slash prophet that are constantly talking about the spiral of destiny that they are on and keep asking for permission to speak of doom and keep getting denied. Their personalities really wins the day. And of course, my other favorite trope, the sentience ship. This is like a coming of age story for you sexy thing because they are trying to like learn and they have experienced all these new emotions that they have never known before with their past owners, with this crew. They start to feel those feelings that they're only like aware of them in concepts. So now they're, they're feeling it the the word like camaraderie or the word like frustration you know, and it's so great to see do sexy thing especially trying to learn how to cook instead of using replicators you know he's trying to learn how to cook from Dabri it's just like so much fun and it's so adorable one of the things that did take a lot of readers by surprise and they find it maybe a little jarring is that there is a bit of a darker side to this too. You know, it is mostly fun, but there is definitely a darker history that some of these characters have. And there's some scenes that was surprising because of that. So just brace yourself for a little bit darker and maybe grimmer scenes in here. But there are so many loose ends and we need a sequel, of course, which is coming out This coming year, um, also with a song name called Devil's Gun. I don't know the song, but I have to go look it up. If there's one complaint I thing about this book is that I I need more cooking. More cooking, please. (laughs) Because, you know, like, I mean, what book like space opera cooking is just like so perfect. So just maybe a little more cooking. Um, This would make this perfect. So the best kind of pulpy science fiction. Again, this is you Sexy Thing by Kate Rambo. All right. So while everybody's singing that song, let's go to our existential question. What kind of music do you listen to when you read? Are there like perfect type of music? Corinne?
1: So this is a little bit unfair because before we started the podcast, Virginia kind of mentioned this question. We just kind of quickly went around to see what the answers were. And I am... Shaken by the answers that are about to come out of my fellow book lovers' mouth because yeah, I listen to music. I, I have different playlists, I have specific artists that I listen to for specific books. Um, my life I like to run with like a constant soundtrack of music. I don't think there is a time that I'm usually not playing music except at work because I can't. So yeah, I I have different playlists that I listen to while I read books. Obviously, where's my little pin? Obviously, BTS. I have a special BTS reading playlist. But I also have... my playlist of like the glum mix that i listen to when it's like a sad book and then i have crime time which is a playlist that is a little bit more upbeat when people are doing heists and that's what i read for fun books but yeah i I always 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 listen to music when i'm reading and so i don't understand what's about to happen next
2: fiona
0: you want to go next (laughs) sure i'll take the heat Yeah, I need total silence to read. Uh, So I cannot do music and I can't even do like, I can't really read in like the same room as people having a conversation. And so it's sort of, unfortunately, books and music compete for me. Like I would like to spend more time with music, but books win. Now, very occasionally I will put on classical and I don't know anything about classical, but there's no words. So it's not as bad. And I'll just turn on Tchaikovsky.
3: Yeah, if I was to listen to music, while I was reading a book it would have to be instrumental like I guess you could make like the Haruki Murakami jazz and like classical music playlist for like all those books if you really wanted to I'm sure someone actually already has made that if you were to look it up on like Spotify or like Apple Music or something you could probably could find one already but generally I don't have anything on at all when I'm reading I can only read but am like reading like a short internet article where I don't need like super high attention because it's got lyrics and it's, like I got the lyrics and then like the text it's like they just conflict with one another too much it's like I just can't do that
2: totally totally agree yeah I need complete silence especially with words anything those words just doesn't bother me so like when my husband is playing video games and there's like video game noises I'm just like ah go away go away because they talk too much can't deal with that I can maybe deal with hockey noises. I do sometimes occasionally have hockey noises in the background. It's the different kind of noise. It doesn't, I don't know. Anyway. So yeah, no noise. No noise,
1: preferably. Yes, Corinne, follow-up question. So many. Follow-up question. Yes, because um, I really don't understand <laughs> Really I, I sometimes even look like put on a podcast and read at the same time. So there's people talking, and I you read at the same time at the same and uh, yeah, I, I when people are watching TV in the same room, I read as well. yeah so my 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 follow my first follow-up question is did do you listen to did you listen to music when studying or like writing essays?
0: No, also need complete silence for that.
3: the only time I ever stuck. Listening to music when I was studying was in high school for classes I didn't particularly care about, really.
1: I don't know if I want to process this on air right now. So when do you listen to music, then?
3: When you're doing stuff on the Internet. That's, like, number one by far. Um, like, if you're on transit or something like that, you can listen to music, too, as long as you got your headphones. Sometimes also if it's like a video game or something like that, I really don't like the soundtrack or like the t- the voice acting or something like that. I just mute it and then like put some music on, and just read the text.
0: Yeah, right now I really don't listen to music because, like I said, it's it's either a choice between music or reading, um, and I have to really, really want the music for it to
1: win over reading. Okay. Second follow up question, just <clears throat> just out of curiosity because I'm I'm trying to figure this out, is like when you were growing up did people play a lot of music
0: like in like family like I listened to oldies radio a lot growing up and when we went on car trips but it wasn't like like my family was like that too you know some people you go to their home and their tv is always on that was like not like no radio background no tv background like I think my whole family is very like easily distracted so
1: (laughs) yeah
2: no other sounds I think for me there's more music, definitely more music when I was younger, um, everywhere, but I don't read as much at that point. So it's like it's not competing with reading. It's just listening to music in the car or listening to music, you know, whatever.
1: So yeah. Just processing. It's it's so much to take in. It's so much to take in. Yeah, you work on that.
2: Maybe I can't, maybe you shouldn't talk about your book next. Maybe we need to go to Fiona because I feel like you're going to be so distracted by this conversation.
1: I'm going to grab Sadie after this as well, just to kind of like check in. Because I feel like I'm not the only person that does this. Oh, I'm sure you're
2: not. I'm sure you're not. Just not here. That's all. Zeke, <laughs> if Gabriel is here, I think Gabriel is probably a listening to music person while doing whatever they always have the headphones on so. no
1: i feel like this is very strange for me to be like the lone dissenting voice on this of people who like live in a monk-like silence yeah no silence
2: because i can't can't focus i need to focus need to concentrate on the words.
1: And, and maybe that's the opposite. I can't focus if it's silent.
2: See, like I can't even like read on the bus when like, because I, I read on the bus a lot and people have always attract people who want to talk on their phone to sit next to me. And I'm just like, God. out of all the seats, you have to sit here. There are so many other seats. There are other people who are also talking on the phone. Go hang out with them. Don't hang out with me. You can tell I'm reading. But yeah, though that doesn't help. So yeah, I can't concentrate. White noise, maybe okay. Like, you know, rain. I can read with rain.
3: Rain's good. Rain noise.
2: Rain rain noises is perfect. You know, nice, good background.
3: No noise is good. Yeah. Waves can be good if you're at the beach.
2: Yeah. 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 Those kind of noises are totally good. Anything with words. (laughs) Because you end up starting like singing along instead of like reading. I feel like if you're listening to things that has words in it. You just
1: detach part of your brain. No. Well,
2: we don't have, we don't all have that talent. What's going to happen next is
0: that Green is going to go interview every survey, everybody in the office.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to put a whiteboard up at the front of the library and people can kind of like do their little
3: tallies because I'm genuinely curious. I'll go right next to the poll of can you name all five Spice Girls?
2: So with that, I'm sorry, Corinne. Didn't think that this question is going to cause you so much pain. Um, didn't realize. I thought at least there would be somebody else. I did think that there would be somebody else who need noise. Apparently not. All right. Well, more things that we learn about each other never cease to surprise us, right? All right, Corinne, are you uh like composed? Are you ready for your book?
1: Yes, because I'm about to talk about one of my favorite subjects, which is music. So. Girlfriend in a coma, I know, I know, it's serious. There were times when I could have strangled her. But you know, I would hate anything to happen to her. Lyrics from the song Girlfriend in a Coma by one of my favorite bands of all time, The Smiths. Active from 1982 to 1987, this Manchester rock independent post-funk and 1960s rock fusion band is a four-person juggernaut, probably most famous in North America for their B-side from William It Was Really Nothing, How Soon Is Now?, which is kind of like a neo-psychedelic alternative rock, which doesn't sound like any other of their songs, but a cover of it by Love Spit Love was used for the theme song for the television show, Charmed. And so that is where most people know this band from. It consists of four members, the heart of which is a songwriting-composing team of Stephen Morrissey, and I'm calling him Stephen because he hates it, and I don't feel bad about that because he's a straight-up monster, and guitarist Johnny Marr, who on the whole is okay. (laughs) He's fine. And according to a judge who had to rule in their royalty battle after the band broke up, is the smartest member of the Smiths because, yeah, a judge ruled on that in a court of law. So. They were formed when Johnny Marr, a young guitarist, and his friend showed up at Morrissey's house, knocked on the door and said, hey, you want to make a band? And Morrissey thought about it for a day and was like, sure, why not? In their first sitting down and making songs, they composed Hand That Rocks the Cradle and Suffer Little Children. Just sitting down, churning out a masterpiece. It's so much. After that, they only released Four studio albums combining the genius of Morrissey's sad sack melancholy lyrics with Johnny Marr's innovative jangly guitar music. They played their third gig, their third gig at the Hacienda. They are also joined by Andy Rourke, who is their bassist, and Mike Joyce, who is their drummer, who at some point, Morrissey said, they were as readily replaceable as the parts in a lawnmower. He's a real gem. He also broke up the band via post-it note. So he is the worst. So, the Smiths are a band that were very much formed around kind of like anti-establishment lyricism and Morrissey's philosophy about 80s Britain. So, it was very anti-corporate, anti-punishment, anti-Thatcher, militant vegetarianism, which you, you can make music about, and he really hated the Queen, just really hated the Queen, And from this kind of very specific time and place, he and Johnny Marr created some of the most beautiful, sad music upon which to just feel sorry for yourself. And that is what Douglas Copeland used as the basis of his book, Girlfriend in a Coma. First published in 1998, it was considered kind of like a change of style for Douglas Copeland in that it had a plot. So I'm going to be very honest in that I have a decades-long beef with Douglas Copeland. One-sided. One-sided. But you can ask my friends because this is not a secret that I've kept to myself. I hate Douglas Copeland. I hate him. Everything that he does, everything that he says, every like piece of art that he creates is done with such a very specific little smirk on his face that just I don't think we could have a civil conversation, Douglas Copeland and I. And so, was it stupid for me to pick up this book? (laughs) Yeah, it really was. Especially because I didn't read the synopsis of it and didn't realize that it was like an end-of-the-world dystopia, which is what I hate the most. (laughs) And it's a Douglas Copeland book. So, our titular girlfriend in the coma is Karen. And after she and her boyfriend have sex on Grouse Mountain, which gross in the wilderness, outdoors where their friends are skiing five steps away, they go to like a house party and Karen starts being like a little weird. It's 1979. They're about to graduate high school. Everyone's doing drugs and diet pills and you know 70s stuff. But Karen's kind of like melancholy and keeps saying weird things to Richard about, you know, like the end of the world and like I'm not gonna see graduation and oh life is hard. And he's he kind of brushes it off until at the party, Karen <laughs> Karen falls into a coma as the title would suggest. And Richard, who is left behind, is also suddenly a father um, because after their one tryst on the mountain, Karen becomes pregnant and gives birth to Megan while still in a coma. And this is kind of about Richard's journey, but also the journey of his horrible group of friends, each of which are ruthless psychopaths. There's Wendy, who's a doctor but doesn't care about people. And then she hooks up with Linus, who's an engineer who went on like a vision quest walking through the desert just because he felt bored. There's Pam, who's a supermodel who eventually kind of bottoms out of that world due to addiction and then becomes a makeup artist on the x-files as far as i can tell um and harrison the guy who ditches his wife as soon as she comes back on the scene anyways their lives suck and they're bad people and then the world ends oh no wait karen wakes up karen wakes up and is like oh dang did i not sleep through the apocalypse yeah got the timing all wrong she wakes up and then the world ends In this mix, in the first part and last part of the book, there is Jared, an 18-year-old jockey dude bro who died, who might be God. Undecided. Anyways, the world ends and all of these friends are kind of, I guess what Douglas Culpin is kind of saying is like they're surviving but not thriving, but that's because everyone else is dead. Like everyone, everyone is dead. And this takes place in Vancouver. So it's like, oh, cool. We're just going through where I live and so many skeletons, so many skeletons. So everyone is dead. And then Jared shows up to them as a ghost slash God and is like, hey, what have you been doing with your lives in this post-apocalyptic world that we live in? And they're like, not much. Like, we went to Blockbuster. What? I think. Think douglas copeland is trying to do douglas copeland very famous for kind of coining the word generation x is that (laughs) boy he's trying to address the nihilism of 30-somethings in the 90s asking is this all there is to life um and what's the point of technology also hmm So he's asking some big questions, but the problem is, is that the people who are asking these questions are horrible, and I don't care, and I wish they had died. I wish they had died in the Great Apocalypse and that anyone else, anyone else in the entire world had survived. Anyone. I think the only slightly sympathetic character in the entire thing is Megan, the daughter born of Karen and Richard, who's just, she's a 90s, Kid. And when her mother wakes up, who is born in the 70s, but mentally still the same age as her daughter, there's some interesting things there and about like the generational divide. And like people in the 70s were earnest and they had dreams and they thought about the future. And you 90s people are all like grim and you don't care about anything. And yeah. And Karen says a lot of stuff about the 90s, how it all sucks. I what it made what this book really made me think of is like, how's Douglas Copeland doing these days? C-Okay. I feel like Twitter might have destroyed him. Considering this is where he was in, like, 1998, I'm worried about him. Is he okay? Because I feel like probably not. So, if you are looking for a book that harshly changes genres about two-thirds in, I will admit, I skipped through most of the plague apocalypse because... (laughs) No thanks. I just kind of flipped through until it was the actual end of the world and everyone was dead and they're called leakers and it was gross. If you're looking for a post-apocalyptic screed about cell phones, well, then this is for sure a book for you. I will admit, when doing my research on this book, there were some interesting points. He wrote this. He said it kind of just like erupted out of him after he had gone through what he called the darkest period in his life. So he went on this big European tour for microsurfs, which I hate, and he was super burned out. He, had, he said he had nothing left. Like He could barely move. He couldn't pump gas. He couldn't like make himself a cup of soup. And he, in fact, only chose Vancouver as the setting because he was too tired to think of anything else. And he was interested in comas because apparently this is a modern invention, like plastic in his words, which I thought was a bizarre sentence that I would never read. But here we are. But it's very interesting that this is kind of like a book about burnout and disillusionment about the world and disillusionment about humanity, which is ultimately really hopeful at the end, I think, if I'm interpreting the end right. And what I did enjoy about the book is that there's a bunch of Smith's lyrics and song titles scattered throughout the book that only if you know, you will pick up on. So that was kind of a fun game. And I I don't know. This isn't gonna patch up things between me and Dougie. Like we're never, we're never gonna to vibe together. But there is a quote that he wrote about choosing this particular title that actually did resonate with me. Of the title Girlfriend and Nakoma*, he said it's clearly descriptive of the book, but also a little salute to those points in my life when I was melting down to soundtracks provided by British gloomy rockers. And that resonated. So can I recommend this book? No. Oh no 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 <laughs> no 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 am I glad I read it? No. No I am not. No, that's all I got. I was gonna try and I, I was gonna try and wrap it up and say but, but no, I don't recommend it. Didn't enjoy it, kept me up all night being angry about it. But I can say that I've successfully finished a Douglas Copeland book. So that's that's what we're gonna rest on. You
2: they good. You they good. thank you for the sacrifices that you make for this podcast constantly. Yeah, just focus on the... Just focus on the lyrics. Focus on your Smith and... Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I'm not going to follow up on your um, hatred with Douglas Copeland because you can tell us later. You can tell us later.
1: Many have tried. All have failed. I will take this to my grave.
2: All right. Okay.
1: All right. Last but not least, Fiona.
0: Well, I have a very good counterpoint to that because I just have a a pleasant, lovely rom-com. And... As Virginia noted, a lot of YA books right now are using like 80s and 90s song titles for the title of their book. That seems to be a trend. Uh from what I have seen, the like content is very loosely based, but definitely it seems like there's a nostalgia for like especially the 80s right now in this like generation that's reading YA at the moment, that seems that are like teenagers right now. I don't know where it came from, but it seems to be there. So I have chosen a book titled She Drives Me Crazy, which is the young cannibal song. It's sports. It's sapphic. It's a rom-com. Can you fault it for anything? <laughs> Yeah, and so it is named for the Young Cannibal song, She Drives Me Crazy, which I honestly didn't know that I knew, but I totally know. It's like totally ingrained in there and I start to bop when I think about it. It is a great song and it's one of those ones where you don't, none of the lyrics are clear except for, She drives me crazy. She drives me crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's a a great song, and I I had no awareness that it was in my brain, like, fully and completely, as I think you're all discovering right now. (laughs) And I did definitely, like, have it in my head the whole time that I was reading, which was a little bit distracting. (laughs) I can't even think about a song while I'm reading (laughs) This book is set in the present, and it follows Scotty, who is a high schooler who has recently gone through a very... Bad breakup with her basketball teammate, who is honestly a total jerk, (laughs) Uh, Tilly. Tilly uh, was, in Scotty's eyes, just wonderful and perfect. And she was so in love with her and loved playing ball with her. But Tilly wanted more. Their high school basketball team wasn't good enough. So she decided she would transfer and because she wanted to play on a better team all of this just came out of nowhere for Scotty and she was absolutely heartbroken and it led to their breakup. She had always kind of felt like she wasn't good enough for Tilly and she was sort of just following her around and Tilly kind of made all the choices and didn't bring Scotty in on them. So it basically crushes Scotty and she loses any confidence and her Basketball game goes down the toilet, and that really shows in the first game that they play against Tilly's new school, in which they are absolutely crushed. Enter the beautiful popular cheerleader, Irene Abraham. (laughs) Gotti is actually quite frustrating. Like you kind of have sympathy for her because the book is basically about her growing. But Irene, on the other hand, is a total. Badass, awesome, smart high schooler. And, you know, Scotty's impression of her is that she's like stuck up, but we as the reader can see that she actually is just like self possessed and, you know, has her stuff together. So as Scotty is thinking about Tilly, she accidentally rams her car into Irene's car in the parking lot. And this puts Irene's car out of commission and of course there's already some bad blood between them because Scotty thinks she's super super stuck up and they get in a big public fight and huff off together however their mothers know each other and they live across the street and so their mothers put together this plan where Scotty will drive Irene to school in order to kind of like make up for the fact that Irene's car is not functional anymore. So we have a situation of people who hate each other being pushed together, a classic enemies to lover trope. On top of that, we also get a fake dating trope when Scotty decides that the best way to make Tilly jealous is to date the super popular, beautiful cheerleader. And it's actually pretty like, kind of messed up because irene i can't remember, she's like not allowed to work her parents don't want her to work because they don't because they want her to study or something but she needs to pay to go to like some i can't remember something she, i can't remember if it's the car or like some class that she really wants to do so she needs money <laughs> and so basically gotti ends up paying her to be her girlfriend which is like oh that's pretty creepy but it's a lot of fun like it's like it's so tropey but i would say this book just does everything so well. So it's it's just, it's like quite flawless in the writing and the characters. And it is exactly what it is. Like if you want sapphic, if you want basketball, if you want enemies to lovers, and then with these kind of thrown in, like, so Scotty, like basically her hobby is like watching 80s movies. 13 Candles and that sort of stuff. And Irene has this, like, playlist of 80s music that she forces Scotty to listen to on their involuntary car rides. And there's, like, a really sweet, like, Christmas scene. And for me, I love a Christmas scene. And we have a great cast of secondary characters and siblings and... You know, all the while it's also got this like these side stories of like coming out and how difficult that can be. And Irene is also biracial and she has some identity conflict. And the characters really grow a lot throughout the book. So it does exactly what it sets out to do extremely well. So if you are looking for just like a slam dunk hee-hee of a of a rom-com that you just need between like some things that have been really frustrating, I would definitely recommend Kelly Quindlin's She Drives Me Crazy. And I think that, yeah, I think she's a really great author. Like I will definitely be picking up whatever else she writes as this sort of like, I can count on you, Kelly Quindlin. Thank
2: you, Fiona. So now that we've got some songs probably stuck in your brain that you'll be listening to all day. And Fiona, you're so right about your song. Like, yeah, it's trying to be crazy and then whatever. Yeah, that is just exactly what it is.
1: It's literally uh 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh 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 all right,
2: well, I'll get everybody go back to their reading, go back to their listening music and reading at the same time, apparently. Um, and so you know, we'll see you again next time so long, and thanks for all the fish.
1: Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional!